0: Amen, amen. You guys may be seated. So, as I said earlier, my name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for joining us today. I'm grateful you'll be with us as we jump back into the book of Acts. I do want to make a note uh, that this is typically where we speak about giving here in this time, and you're able to give in a variety of ways. You can give online, you can scan the QR code, you can even give via text. There's this crazy old-fashioned way you can give as you leave, too. So don't let this sway you. There's multiple ways you can give and support the mission of Holmes Avenue. Now, as we begin, we are jumping back into the book of Acts. As you know, we had just a few short weeks break where we were looking at this gospel message, this road to Jesus. And now we're back in the book of Acts, beginning our study of Paul's first missionary journey. I reference all that. Not only am I talking about that today, but you may remember these lovely little guides to the book of Acts where you can write in these scripture journals. We have some extra ones over here to my right, your left, if you'd like to grab one. If you don't have this, I encourage you to get it. Since we've been in the book of Acts for a while, I think most of you have that. Now, as we move into the book of Acts again, I think that it's probably likely that we're going to need a refresher on what's going on, right? We need to remind ourselves what's happening in the midst of the story. And so Acts, as we recognize, begins by focusing on the early church in Jerusalem with Peter as a main character. They do a lot of incredible things here in the first part of the book of Acts and the first few chapters, and then they encounter persecution. It's here in this time of persecution that we're introduced to Saul, whom we more commonly known as Paul. He's leading the persecution efforts, and during this time, he experiences a miraculous conversion. After this, as Paul has been converted, he begins serving the church in faraway areas. We have Peter who first brings the gospel to the Gentiles. You see, this conversion of Cornelius signals a a turning point in the efforts of the church with the gospel. And we pick up in Acts 11 with Christians in Antioch proclaiming the gospel to Gentiles as well. The early church hears about it in Jerusalem and they send Barnabas up to investigate and to encourage them. And he goes and he finds that all is in order. The Lord is moving. They are being blessed. Good things are happening. As he's there, he is led by the Spirit to go and to get Paul from this faraway place in Tarsus and brings him back to further encourage the church in Antioch alongside himself. See, this takes us to where we are today in Acts chapter 13. This is the beginning of the formal missionary journeys of Paul in the book of Acts. You see, from here through the end of the book of Acts, we see that there are roughly three missionary journeys from Paul. He travels over what can perhaps be described as the entire known world, preaching the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. You see, in these missionary journeys, we see what I will describe to you today as the ministry of reconciliation. That's where our title has come from. Paul and Barnabas were called to proclaim the good news of Jesus to lost Jews and Gentiles. Their work was one that would see people reconciled to God, just as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 would say. Really, I, I think just as a homework assignment, if you are someone who likes extra credit, you should go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 sometime today. Don't do it now because we're not going there, but go read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 at some point. I think that you can see so much evidence of how we're to live and to work as Christians, particularly in that last part of 2 Corinthians 5. But in that, that's where we pull this idea that we are ministers of reconciliation from, that we are called to be missionaries in a sense. See, this missionary call, this missionary call is that Christians, people who love God, would be sent out to offer reconciliation to those who are far from him. You see, you and I have come into the faith not by accident, not by finding our way in the dark. No, we became believers because someone was faithful to tell us about Jesus. And because of this gospel message, we are now reconciled to God. This is not just a missionary call that is given to some special men and women who are sent out to the nation's. We send them out as missionaries and we bless them. We pray for God to move and we rejoice over that. But this is not limited to just them. No, this is a call to all Christians to live as image bearers of Jesus in a lost and dying world. Charles Spurgeon once said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. The truth is, is that if we're to be faithful Christ followers, we are to live in a way that embraces this missionary call. Now, maybe you're like me and you hear that and you go, okay, I can get behind that. I I can affirm that, that I should go tell people about this grace that I've received. One question, what does that look like? What am I supposed to do? If you're like me, you're probably asking the question, okay, I I want to do this, but what does it look like to bear the image of God, to display his goodness, to proclaim his name in a lost and dying world? Well, I believe that as we study this passage today, we'll see that not only do Paul and Barnabas understand how to do this, but... I believe they're able to clearly teach us about the ministry of reconciliation and what does it mean to be an image bearer of God? What does it mean to truly be a missionary? Now at this time, I'd like to take a look at the passage and to read through these verses. And as we typically do, I would ask you to stand and read the word of the Lord with me. We're gonna be in Acts chapter 13, beginning of verse one. You can flip over to it or you'll be able to read on the screen. Beginning in verse one. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit... They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness went out, fell out upon him, and he went out about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are grateful for you. We're thankful that... Though we were once in darkness, we now have eyes to see. That we have seen the light and it has transformed who we are. Father, it is my prayer today that as we study this section of Scripture, that we could see clearly this missionary call that we have. We could truly see who it is we are to be, who we are to follow. And Lord, I pray that you would make these things clear to us that you would fill us with your spirit, allow us to be image bearers that would reflect your goodness and your glory. Lord, I pray during this time that our hearts would be open, our minds would be receptive to the truth of the scriptures, that as we study these words, they would not merely be words to us, but the living, breathing words from God. Lord, I pray that you bless us, allow your spirit to move upon us and make us receptive to your words. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. So as we begin in our first section here, our first point is that we see the foundation of our ministry on display. Look back at verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lu- Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews They had John to assist them. As we begin our study of this passage, we start with a description of what is the leadership group of the church in Antioch. See, they're described as prophets and teachers here. And I believe these words are likely intentional from God through Luke to show us what the leaders in the church of Antioch are like. See, this usage of prophet, it points to this idea of being spirit-filled. Every time we see the word prophet, it's people who are described as full of the Spirit, speaking with authority on behalf of God. And so Luke is pointing to these men, to these people saying they speak with authority on behalf of the Lord. These are godly men who are devoted to the Lord and to his leading. They also use the word teachers here, and this clearly points to teaching as a priority. See, it's not enough that you might be a prophet speaking with authority. You must teach from the Scriptures, that you must teach on how to live in this world from the Scriptures. See, these are godly men who are devoted to the Lord, His leading, and the Scriptures. We're not sure precisely why Paul uses this language here. Maybe he's drawing attention to the type of character we should look at when we're looking for leaders. Maybe he's establishing these men's legitimacy by showing their character and skills. Regardless of his reason, he points out that these are godly men. And then he moves on to describe what we see as a very diverse group of men in leadership. I mean, truly, we have this incredible group of people. We've got Barnabas, who's a Jewish believer whose family is from Cyprus. We've heard from Barnabas a few times in the book of Acts. We've got Simeon, who is a black man that we believe is from Africa. See, Niger is a, a Greek form of the Latin word for black. So we've got this man who has been brought to this leadership position. We've got Lucius, who's likely a Hellenistic Jew. That is, he's of this Greek culture, but he's Jew by birth or by his faith. We've got Mananian, who's a man who's a childhood friend with Herod, the current ruler in Galilee. This is the same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist and has been involved in some difficulty with the church. Finally, we have Saul, whom we've already met and heard just a little bit about. See, this is an incredibly diverse group of people that God has brought together into leadership in Antioch. There's perhaps a lot that could be said about this. There's much you could draw from it. But I think it's necessary to focus in on not just these men and their character, but their actions. Because as we consider this idea that our actions, our words come from who we are, we truly see who people are when we see how they speak and act. If we look at how these men act and the words they say, I would say that they passed the test for us. Specifically, we see that for these men, as they are being introduced, the next thing that we encounter is that they are worshiping the Lord and fasting. This is the foundation of their ministry, both the church at Antioch's ministry and their personal ministry. This is also an aside, this is the foundation of our ministry. And I'm not speaking of ministry in the sense of ministerial calling. I'm speaking of that you and I have a ministry that is individually given to us from God. That you and I are called to be missionaries, to be image bearers for his name and his glory. And the foundation of that, the foundation of that is our worship of the Lord. You see, as we counter these men in the middle of what is perhaps one of the most important moments in the book of Acts, they're worshiping the Lord. If we get into the Greek a little bit, we'll see that some commentators believe that this is referring to an intentional time of prayer for their church. See, this element of worshiping is present, that they are praying, that they are studying the scriptures, they are meditating upon them, they are teaching one another the Scriptures. They are looking at the Word of God and praying to Him for Him to guide and direct Him. We also see that fastings mentioned. Now, fasting is one of those things that uh, sometimes we don't like to talk about, right? Um, I recognize that we're Baptists, and when you become a Baptist, you get a 9 by 13 casserole dish, and you're invited to the potluck. That's just how it goes. However, fasting is not a scary thing. Fasting as we study the scriptures, at least in the New Testament, it's considered to be at least something that we are occasionally expected to do. We know that because Jesus gives some guidance on how to fast and what we're to do. We see that's referred to throughout the scriptures with the early churches. They're fasting and praying. They're waiting on an answer from the Lord. They are saying, we're going to deny ourselves from the normal demands of life to concentrate fully upon what the Lord wants. See, that's the significance of fasting, not that we are going without food, but that we are in place of that food, feeding ourselves from the word of God and seeking his will, seeking his way in this world. Now, as we read this, you might recognize that these things are important for us, uh, perhaps these specific actions, but certainly in principle, you might feel led to set aside some time to to pray, and to fast. And I encourage you to do that. There are many resources that we can point you to that will help you with this, but I think we're putting the cart ahead of the horse there. You see, I believe the key here is not necessarily the actions that are being described, but the principle that's being put on display for us. You see, these men and this church They are clearing time in their lives to not only be with God, but to hear from them. To hear from Him. I want to say that again because I want to make sure you grasp this. They are clearing time in their lives to not just be with God, but to hear from Him. This is the foundational element, not just of our ministry, but Of the Christian life. I'll ask you this question, and you know the answer to what I'm about to ask. You are married or you've been married, you know this answer. How long would you stay married if you didn't spend time with your spouse or even listen to them? The answer is not very long. I don't know what else you were expecting, but no, you would not have a very long marriage if you never acknowledge your spouse, if you never talk to them, if you never listen to them, it would end rather quickly. Now, as we contrast that with our relationship to God, we I'm not saying that the Lord is going to abandon us because we are not listening, because we're not coming to him, but he doesn't have to abandon us because most of us have already left him behind. This is a rhetorical question. You don't need to answer this one, but you do need to consider the answer for yourself. If we look back on our week, how intentional were we in creating space for God? If we look back on our week, how intentional were we in creating space for God? I'm not talking about just our devotional times where we might study the scriptures and do things of that nature. I'm talking about any time, times of prayer, times of worship. Like, where in your schedule did you put time for the Lord? That if we took a moment and looked back at our calendar, we might recognize the truth that we spent more time on personal pursuits and pleasures than we have on God. We live our lives this way as if we are practical atheists And then we read the book of Acts and we wonder why we are powerless in comparison to the church in Acts. If you're taking notes, I need you to hear this. If you're not taking notes, then you need to start for this next one. If you take one thing away from me today, if there's one thing you hear, it's going to be this. Your success at living the Christian life as it should be will always be equal to the amount of time you spend with God. Your success at living the Christian life as it should be will always be equal to the amount of time that you spend with God. The more time you spend with God, the holier you will be. The more time you spend with God, the more like Christ you will be. The less time you spend with God, well, we'll read about you in the newspaper. We'll probably see your mugshot on the Berkeley County Facebook page. That is the natural outcome, that if we are spending time with the Lord, our life as a Christian, our individual spiritual life will thrive. You see, the church in Antioch understood this And they saw God move. Perhaps you're considering this and you're looking back at your life, you're looking back at your week and you said, I was not intentional about creating those spaces with the Lord. I'll tell you something that a pastor friend told me many years ago that I think is true. If you don't put it on the schedule, it isn't going to happen. That if you don't put it on the schedule, it's not going to happen. Simply put, if there is open time in your life, something will seek to fill it. And I would ask you this question, that if you are committed to growing in your relationship with God, are you scheduling time so that you might encounter him and hear from him? You see, as we study this passage, we recognize that the church in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, they scheduled that time. They found that it was important to set aside that time. And when they did, the Spirit moved. You see, here in this time, we see that the Spirit speaks to the gathered body. And it tells them to set Barnabas and Paul aside for this specific work. Now, for you and I, when we hear the voice of the Lord, we might, if we hear it in a clear, audible sense, we might say, Yes, Lord. Paul, Barnabas, y'all need to go ahead and go. The church in Antioch didn't work that way. You see, they hear the word of the Lord, they hear the presence of the Spirit, and what do they do? They don't say, Go on, boys. They then devote themselves to yet again worshiping prayer and fasting. You see, I think it's interesting they've just heard from God in their time of worship and what do they do? They double down on it to confirm that they've clearly heard from him. They say, if the Lord of God, his voice will speak to us, he'll speak to us again. Let's make sure that he's speaking. In the midst of that, They find that the Lord has spoken clearly. They agree with him and they see the evidence of his work in these men. And so they pray over them. They send them out to go do the work that the Lord has set apart from them. And so we have Barnabas and Paul and John Mark, as we see, are setting out on this first missionary journey. They set sail down to Cyprus, about a hundred miles away from Antioch. And it's Barnabas' hometown. This is the place that he's from. They head on down there and you might be asking like I did, what's the significance of Cyprus? Why would they start there? I have no idea. They were perhaps led by the spirit. That's a crossroads city. That's kind of the most heavily trafficked area in the Mediterranean. Why did they go to Cyprus? I'm not sure. But the Lord takes them there to this area. As I said, they're joined by John Mark as a helper. And this is the John Mark, the writer of the gospel of Mark. And as they go down to Cyprus, their plan is simple. It's as simple as can be. You might think that these brilliant missionary strategists have this multi-step complicated plan that they're gonna enact and it's gonna require multiple action steps and all of this. No, these guys are not grand strategists. Their plan is very simple go to the synagogues and preach the message about Jesus to the Jews. And then when they get tired of listening to Paul and Barnabas, we go preach to the Gentiles about the message of who Jesus is. And then when they get tired of us, they run us out of town and we'll go to the next place to proclaim the message of who Jesus is. Needless to say, the North American Mission Board and the IMB, the International Mission Board, would not say that's the greatest missionary strategy on earth. Yet, this is what Paul and Barnabas, repeatedly on their missionary journeys, used for great success to reach the ancient world. So they head down to Cyprus. And they start on the eastern side, and they're planning to sweep westward to cover the entire island. And we don't see Luke address it, but we know from Paul's epistles that as they begin preaching to the Jews in the region, they then move on to the Gentiles and They start with the Jews to fulfill this covenant that God has with the Jews, that Jesus has come first to the Jews to save them, and then he's to save the rest of the world. He's calling his wayward children, the Jewish people, home, as he's calling this lost and disobedient people, the Gentiles, home as well. And it's here in the beginning stage of this first missionary journey as they're beginning their efforts to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles that they encounter opposition to the gospel. See, it begins right as Paul and Barnabas are beginning the work of ministry. That takes us to our second point. What is the work of ministry? Look at verses 6 through 11. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Alemas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. It's here that we encounter the work of our ministry. If we assent to the truth that the foundation of our ministry is indeed that we are committing ourselves to the word of God, we're committing ourselves to Jesus and his work, that means that we must do something from that. That if our heart is being transformed, then that will lead to words and actions that are reflective of that transformation. As we see here, if we enter back into our passage. We see that our missionaries have moved locations. That The passage says that they've gone as far through the whole island as Paphos. And this city we know is on the eastern side of the island. It's a newer city and it's one that's the seat of the Roman government on the island. This is where their, their headquarters for everything is. And it's here in the midst of their missionary efforts that they encounter opposition along with what I would describe as an opportunity. You see, verse 7 tells us they've come to this area, the city of Paphos, because the Roman leader of the area has summoned them. He gives his name as Sergius Paulus. And as we've looked at historical records, we do see some evidence that there was a Sergius Paulus that had some ties to the island of Cyprus. And so we believe that this is a real guy. Like we, we have Roman records that show that he's a real guy who is leading this area. See, so he's the governor of the island and he's seeking to hear the word of God from Barnabas and from Paul. We see that Luke describes him as a man of intelligence. And it's interesting the Greek word here is one that's a very complimentary one. Like you're a smart cookie, like that type of connotation. Luke is maybe suggesting that he thinks very well of this man's not only intelligence, but character. Now to this point, we've not addressed this false prophet, Bar-Jesus or Alimus, as he goes by. See, we first encounter him here and his name Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus or son of salvation, The other name he's referred to is Alimus, and that's Arabic for skillful one. And what we believe here as we look at this is that he's perhaps making some type of claim to be a spiritual descendant of Jesus. And that he has some power and authority because of this. That he's described as a magician here in the English text. So the word here in the Greek magician is uh, magos. This is where we get the word magi from in Matthew chapter two that's used positively to refer to the wise men. They were perhaps astrologers or other people like that. They were wise men who offered good godly counsel. Here in the Greek though, it's used in this negative sense and it carries a meaning of trickster or charlatan or deceiver, quite different definitions, right? Luke's trying to make it very clear that he does not think well of this man. To say the least, he does not think well of this man. And it's here in verse 8 that we are led into the middle of a conflict between our missionaries and Alimus. You see, the text tells us that Alimus is opposed to them at this moment. You see, his position at the pro-council side is in danger if the pro-council listens to these men and believes. We don't know for sure, but the evidence seems to suggest that he's perhaps a part of the pro-council's inner circle, at least, Uh, Matt. perhaps he's an advisor to him. We recognize that as we study the Roman Empire and just the history of Romans and Greeks that these men are very superstitious. You know, these are the same people that in their temples where they have all these little G gods they're worshiping, they have a altar for the unknown God just in case they missed one. We don't want to offend any of them. We want to make them all happy. So in case we haven't caught one, that's the one you put your offerings on. They're very superstitious. They put a lot of weight into these things of fortune-telling, of astrology, of magic. I mean, they want to know what their horoscope says. They're committed to understanding that. And just so happens that the Jewish people within the Roman Empire, they have a reputation of having powers like this, among other things. Josephus, who's a historian of this period, he actually mentions in his works several supposed Jewish sorcerers who had great successes among the Gentiles with their powers of fortune-telling, the magical gifts that they displayed. While we don't believe that these men had any real magical gifts, we recognize that Josephus, a contemporary historian of this time, said, oh yeah, the Jews, they have some magic. And that was a common thought within the Roman Empire. So we have Bar-Jesus here who's playing on those stereotypes perhaps, who's gotten some power and authority, who's here with Sergius Paulus and he is at the side of the proconsul, and he is opposing our missionaries. We don't really know how he tried to oppose them. Uh, the, the Greek here just points to opposition against the faith. Uh, maybe he tried to drag Sergius Paulus away. Maybe he threw something at Paul and Barnabas. Like we don't know what he was doing to oppose them. However, however he tried to do it, whatever he said, whatever he did, he's putting himself into direct opposition and conflict with not only Paul, but with the gospel of Jesus. At this point, Luke, around verse 9, begins to draw our attention to Paul. Verse 9, it says that Paul is being filled with the Holy Spirit. He's looking intently upon Bar-Jesus And this being filled with the Holy Spirit's uh, language is a phrase that's used in the book of Acts. They're drawing some special attention to this specific, special enabling of the Spirit for this moment. This language is actually the same language that's used back in Acts chapter 2. In Pentecost, it's used in Acts chapter 4 with Peter. And as we're following kind of the pattern that's set here in the Scriptures... We know that as we look at the preceding passages, that when someone says that so-and-so is filled with Spirit, we know that God's about to drop the microphone. That He's about to clearly proclaim things that are of God to the world. And in verse 10, Paul uses what I think we could gently describe as very strong, harsh language. He describes Bar-Jesus as being a son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. You see, he's describing him as being inspired by Satan. Paul, I think, has a little bit of a sense of humor here as well because he's also offering a bit of a pun or a play on words, if you will. Remember, his name roughly means son of Jesus or son of salvation. And Paul's trying to make it very clear here that this man has no relation to Jesus, to his person, to his works. That he's using this fact that you say that you're a son of the most high God, but you've truly been adopted by the devil. You see, he cl- sees quite clearly into the issues of Elemus's heart. Elimus is not a believer. He's clearly not a believer and he's opposed, naturally, because of his sin and shame, to Jesus' rule and reign. That he's going to be in direct opposition to Jesus and his word because he's an enemy of God. And so Paul condemns his character... He condemns Elimus' character by saying you're an enemy of all righteousness. He's continuing that play on words by saying that you know because the Greek is in here, it kind of has this play on words, this connotations of contrasting languages. Essentially, he's comparing Bar-Jesus' righteousness to God's righteousness. He's saying that as much as Elimus as Bar-Jesus is unrighteous, the Lord is so much more righteous. He concludes this by asking if Elymas' days of trickery and deceit will end. Maybe it's a rhetorical statement, but I think he's trying to make clear, like, do you not see the depth to which you have sunk, Elymas? Do you not see how far you've gone into your sin and shame? Would you not end this trickery and deceit and repent We don't know what happens in between. Perhaps Elemus doesn't take the opportunity to repent. Maybe he condemns the gospel again. And verse 11 gives us this, what is best described as a curse from God on Elimus. So It's described as he is struck blind. He's struck with blindness for our time. And I think it's very ironic that Paul, be led to condemn this man with temporary blindness. You see, just like his former spiritual self, his former spiritual state, Paul recognizes that when he was struck blind, he actually finally saw who he was. And as he condemns Elemus, perhaps he's hoping that as he sees who he truly is, when he's struck blind, just like Paul would, See, as Lemus is struck blind, he's forced to confront the reality that his outer self now reflects the inner man. He's blind to the world, he's blind to the things of God. One of our early church fathers, John Chrysanthemum, suggests that Paul inflicts his own blindness on Lemus in the hope that it would lead to his conversion just as it did for him. You see, this is the work of our ministry. Not that we're going to go around kicking people off donkeys or striking them blind. No, not that we get to do those things. You see, just like Paul, you and I have been lost. And now we have been found. We should understand the bondage of sin and shame far more clearly than those who are lost. I mean, you and I can literally look back on our lives and we can see the patterns of sin in which we once walked. This type of reflection should not lead us to condemnation of those who are in sin, but should lead us to proclamation of hope and repentance. You see, this is why throughout the scriptures that Christians are described in these positive terms like Ambassadors of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's why Peter refers to Christians as a royal priesthood in 1 Peter chapter 2. See, throughout the New Testament, it's making clear this idea that we are being sent out as missionaries into a lost and dying world so that we might proclaim the good news that we have found the hope the light, the life that we've been seeking. You see, we each have a ministry that God has called us to. We have been commissioned to this ministry just like Paul and Barnabas. Our commissioning ceremony did not happen with a church laying hands on us and praying that we would be sent out as a missionary to a foreign land. No, ours occurred when we trusted in Jesus, repented of our sins, and were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That was the commissioning ceremony that we are now image bearers of God and we are being sent out to proclaim the good news of the one who has come to seek and save the lost. You see, we are to live as representatives of Jesus proclaiming and demonstrating his good news to those around us. See, if things like this are true, then I believe this changes our ordinary day-to-day lives. That it gives our ordinary day-to-day lives those moment-to-moment things that we try, try through, walk through. Gives us greater significance to those things. You know, just a few short weeks ago, I was in Orlando for work. And as I'm down there, as one does when you're in Florida, you go to Publix, right? Like that's the place to go in Florida. And as I'm stopping in to grab some dinner and get back to the event, I'm in line and I'm behind two gentlemen, we both young men. One looks like middle school, the other's high school, and they're purchasing what looks to be chicken nuggets and ketchup. Right? I'm not asking questions about your dietary choices, right? Like you might enjoy chicken nuggets and ketchup. My kids do, right? I'm not saying you're a child, but maybe. And these guys, as they're buying chicken nuggets and ketchup, their card keeps getting declined. Now I'm standing here in line and I'm about to pay for my meal with CSU's money. And I'm over here thinking like, this is like seven bucks. I said, hey guys, you're good. Let me pay for it. Right? No big deal. I'll pay for it. Let me run my card. You're good. And to me, this is no big deal, right? Like it's seven or eight bucks. Like I've spent more on dumber things. Ask my wife, right? Like it's not a big deal. And these guys are just so overwhelmed. They're just like, thank you. Like this, this is our dinner tonight. Like, we get to go home, we get to eat. Like, Thank you so much. And they're, they're overwhelmed. Great, cool. This is good, guys, no big deal. I'm leaving it there. Everything is okay. And the cashier looks up at me and goes, you know, I'm probably not supposed to say this, but this really makes me think of something. You know, it makes me think about, about Jesus. She said, I can't talk about him. I was like, well, you know what? Since you brought him up, I can. Let me talk about him, right? And so here we are making everyone else in the line mad at us as we're sharing the gospel about who Jesus is because of chicken nuggets and ketchup. This ordinary moment of coming into a grocery store to buy dinner turns into an opportunity to proclaim the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. To say the truth of that, to say that I got the opportunity to spend eight bucks to share the good news of Jesus, is that not worthwhile? I mean, I know that it was not just these men and this cashier's hearing it. The people behind me are hearing it. I got an amen at one point from someone back in line. Like, so clearly the Lord was moving and people were receptive. Will I ever know the fruit of that labor? No, I assume they ate their chicken nuggets. I assume that they remember this crazy guy who told them about Jesus after buying them chicken nuggets. My hope and my prayer is they remember the work of that moment where they heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That perhaps in that moment I was planting a seed. Maybe I was watering one that had been planted many years ago. Perhaps after this, someone would reap the harvest and those two men would respond to the good news of the gospel of Jesus and that I would be a part of that work. I don't have their name, I don't have the number, but perhaps one day I might encounter them on the streets of heaven and go, I heard the good news of the gospel and responded to the truth of the gospel because of your willingness to buy my chicken nuggets. You see, this is what we are called to do. This is the work that we are called to do. This is why the scriptures call us ambassadors. This is why the scriptures call us royal priest. There is something greater than ourselves here that we have been commissioned, we have been sent out to proclaim and demonstrate the good news of the gospel of Jesus Now, what could come from proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus? Well, as we see here in verse 12, we see the result of our ministry. Verse 12 reads Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Here's the result of our ministry. Paul's been faithful to follow the Lord's leading and proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. The pro sees this and he believes. Luke states that he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So I believe that Luke makes this note at the end to draw our attention to what swayed the pro-council. You see, the thing that drew the pro-council to the Lord was the teaching of the Lord. It was the clear proclamation of who God is and what He has done. Yes, He has seen something perhaps considered miraculous in front of Him, but if we're honest, compared to many of the miracles that we see in the book of Acts, it's a rather tame one. You see, the proconsul sees, hears, and responds to the gospel message that Jesus Christ has come to seek and save the lost. This is why we labor. This is why we do the work of ministry, so that we might see people repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Perhaps you're here and you're a Christian, that you have the opportunity to rejoice in this good news, that you have been redeemed, that you are being commissioned, you're being sent out as a missionary into a lost and dying world. You get to rejoice in this good news that salvation has come to you and to the world. But perhaps you're here and you recognize that you're not a Christian. Then you have opportunity to be set free just like the pro today. That you get to hear the word of God and you get to respond to this good news of the gospel. That you are a condemned sinner in need of a savior. And that that Savior's name is Jesus and he has made all things right for those who would believe in him. That he offers not only eternal life, but most importantly, forgiveness of sins if you would trust in him. That just like the pro Council, you have an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the good news of Jesus. Here in the next few moments, we'll... Go to the Lord in a time of prayer and private reflection and I'll pray over us and our worship team will lead us in a time of worship to celebrate the good news of Jesus. It is my hope and my prayer that today as you have heard the gospel that just like Sergius Paulus your name would be written in the Lamb's Book of Life that you would be covered by the blood of Jesus because of your willingness to trust in him and repent of your sins. If you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunities you've given us to look to you. Lord, it is my hope and my prayer that during this time of worship that we could encounter you As we look at this idea of good news, the gospel is only good news to those who are willing to call out to a good father. And Lord, we fully acknowledge that if we are in sin, if we're in rebellion, if we're running from you, then good news is not good news. It means that we must turn ourselves in. We must be put in bondage to you, Father. And Lord, only someone who is self-righteous and self-secure would rebel against you. Lord, would you break down those barriers, break down our walls. Let us come before you humbly, gently, confessing our sin, recognizing that we are not perfect, that we have fallen short of the standard that has been set before you, and that we could repent clearly of our sins. Lord, let us be like Sergius Paulus, having heard the teaching of the Lord, that we would be astonished at this and repent and believe. Lord, thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.